Season 2 of the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mack. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. You can find us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This is our second of two episodes with Norman Coates, the Director of Lighting at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. If you haven't listened to the first episode yet, where we talked about education and his role at UNCSA, go check that out now. In this episode, we'll be talking about the Winston-Salem Light Project and Norman's professional career. Enjoy the show. So tell me about the Winston-Salem Light Project. <laughs> it sounds really, really cool. What's um, the... uh, So we're now in our eighth year, ninth year? Winston-Salem Light Project was created to get my students out of the theater for a while. And in the first year, we worked together uh, with Focus Lighting and Major Spears uh, in London uh, through the help of a benefactor, Lucifer Lighting, um, does um, architectural fixtures. And Paul Gregory came down for a week and did some seminars. But basically, that first year, we lit a building. And this all came about, this is the long story, but it all came about because we had done a production of West Side Story. And one of our local uh, philanthropists, always looking for somebody to come down and be part of the school, brought in uh, Gill and, and Susan Matthews of Lucifer Lighting. And they saw the production and they wanted to help the lighting program somehow because, well, they, they sell lighting products. And being in architecture, I couldn't convince them that, well, you know, what you really need to do is give us an endowment of like a million dollars so that we could rent moving light packages every year and not have to buy moving lights so we don't have to maintain them. And, you know, and I couldn't convince them of that. So we did the project they wanted to do, which was to bring Paul Gregory down and Jonathan Spears and, um, and do a project. So we picked a building downtown, which is actually called the Millennium Center. So it became the Millennium Center Project. And it was a 1940s federal building, so it had that sort of Greek revival, uh, republic kind of like statue to it. And each, every student um, took a different uh, artist, painter as it were, and lit the building as though that artist was painting the building. So that was our first year, and it and um, it made a really big splash in town, and it was pleasant and wonderful in so many ways. And, you know, everybody thought that would be the end, but we were kind of determined to keep it going because I found this great value in what it added to the program and the students. And what followed has been a number of years of introducing students to doing projects outside of the theater that provide an expanded view of what light can do. You know, you and I know, and everybody who deals with light knows that vision is our first sense. We get all of our first information from it. And that everything we see is because light has reflected off of the surface. So, you know, it's, it's let's take this, let's take this idea of light, move it out of the theater for you for a while as a student and make you come up with a project where you're the originating artist, that you're not following a script. You're not going into a, into a, a dance studio and watching um, a, a choreographer's work and deciding how to, how to paint that with light. Let's take extent objects, which in a way are scripts, and find a way to manipulate the urban space um, with light that makes it invigorating or new or makes people look at it in a new way. So that's how we started. And now we're in our eighth year and we've incorporated uh, projection mapping as well as uh, some other really interesting little clever devices. Um, So that's, that's the project in its core taking urban, the urban environment and um, uh, manipulating it so that um, the people who've walked past that building for 20 years all of a sudden see it in a new way. It sounds like at many layers it's a really, really amazing project and perfect for sort of young designers. And also they're, they're, you're not leaving them to try and find the work on their own. Right. Right. Because, of course, these projects happen all over the world, but it's it's not like a fresh out of college designer is going to be asked to do any of them. Yeah, the, the, the work on this level in public creates 
all kinds of learning experiences that I didn't anticipate when I first started this uh, and the students never see coming. But you're dealing with public space. You're dealing with um, getting the rights to actually do this, the permission from people, um, having to interface with the city, the police, maybe people you never thought you'd ever talk to. Last year, we projected on the First Baptist Church. And I was told in town that, well, you know, you, the Baptists will never let you do that. And I just wound up being in the right place at the right time. I asked, and they were more than welcoming to let us project on their building. So it opens up all kinds of doors for the students that they never thought of and is always a surprise to me. The, the Terra Luna one from last year looks incredible. It was a great experience. And uh, we've had students who've now left and actually gone into projection design. It's all those levels. We start in the spring, and we're going to start soon in January with with next year's class, with the junior class. And we spend a term just, I try to get out of them what it is that interests them and what they want to do. And of course, me being the the child of the 70s, um, I'm always trying to push them to find social topics or things that are of interest uh, that move forward the discussion of men and society. And, you know, sometimes they just want to do something that's pretty, but we spend a whole term just trying to hash out what's, what building or buildings and what is it you want to say? You know, what's your voice and what do you want to say and how are you going to say it? Are you going to say it just in light, light and projection? And that's how we start the project, which for a theater student who's always read scripts, it's it's not easy. If you think about it, we're starting. If we were, if we were, well, we are visual artists. I was going to say if we were, but we are, um, or they are. Um, you're deciding right from the beginning. It's like, well, what you know? What's my canvas? What am I painting on? Am I painting on anything? <laughs> you know what? You know, so you're, yeah, it's, it's figuring out every part of it. It's, you know, you don't have even the framework of a theater that you know, oh, yeah, we're going to be on a thrust. Oh, well, you don't know that either. Um, mm-hmm. so, so it's requiring them to really think through a lot of stuff. But, and I know some people might disagree with me, but, you know, for me, projection is just, Alico is a projector. Yep. Um, so, you know, projection is just the natural next course in, in lighting design. It's just another way to manipulate light. So, you know, they've really got to, like, think about this from a whole new aspect that they never had before. And like you say, in Europe, this is like uh, public art on buildings and projection on buildings. is pretty common stuff. And, you know, even when, in, you know, unfortunate events recently, if you look at if you look at the pictures that come out of foreign cities – Lit architecture is far more prevalent in Europe than it is here when you look at the, you know, the, the plots in Belgium, uh, in Brussels, um, and how buildings are lit. I was thinking of Sydney. Yeah, Sydney, Australia. Yeah, That, that massive project of theirs, you know, all over the city. All over. So, you know, uh, Philadelphia did a bit, uh, which was nice, on, uh, on Broad Street for a while. So this was sort of a way to get students to think outside that standard box um, look at the city as a palette or as a as a place to be lit or projected on, and then go about all of the legwork you have to do to do that. As theater students, they get to play in the light lab and they get to test a little bit before they put a show up. And I always tell them how deceiving that is because now you're in this little tiny black room that we have as a light lab. And you've got a little tiny chunk of painted surface, which is like two by two as opposed to a whole stage floor. And you know, so what you see is not always accurate, but when you're starting to light up buildings, you need to schlep equipment out there and actually see what it does. You get a pretty good idea of how, in those tests, how to expand what you're doing, um, which is kind of fun in a way. If people want to see this year's results of the Light Project, what do they have to do and where should they go? This year's Light Project is going to be April 12th to the 16th here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And we're lighting a space that was unknown to and is unknown to a lot of people in town. But we're lighting a tunnel that goes uh, between two hotels in downtown under Cherry Street. And we're actually, um, my students have, uh, a couple of my students have seen uh, some James Terrell works recently. They unfortunately didn't get to New York to see the, the fabulous Guggenheim piece that he did. 
But um, we're going to light this underground tunnel as sort of as an homage, not really, or, or, or as a replication of uh, some Terrell works. So there'll be very slow moving color shifts. And we've um, asked a composer at school to build a piece of music for this. And we're calling it Alluvio from the idea of, of a river that is pouring out sediment into a delta and building new land just as though light and sound and art builds new cultural landscapes is our big overreaching theme. And we've already done some tests, um, but but basically it'll be very much like a Terrell piece where you'll walk into the tunnel and you'll be immersed in color that is shifting very slowly and there will be, at the end of the tunnel, we're going to block one end of it off, or at least block it in a way that gives us a steady state light constant so that you do that thing where you'll be sitting in this this tunnel that's that at this one moment is all amber colored. And you'll look down to the end at this white panel that will be either fluorescent lit or lit with a specific color temperature of, of light. And um, you'll see, a, you'll perceive a color and then you'll turn around and the amber will shift to a magenta. And then you'll look back at that flat space and all of a sudden you'll realize it, that appears to be a different color, which we all know it's not. So hopefully this, this piece this year is going to require people to be slow and quiet and relaxed as opposed to last year's piece where we projected all over a building and it was dynamic and moving and had giant gears and all kinds of interesting um, changes to it. Um, and for anybody who wants to come, uh, fortunately, it runs concurrently with the River Run Film Festival, so you can come see a couple movies, see um, see the light show, and uh, and have a good time. And people should check out lightproject.org to learn um, more. Lightproject.org, and you can also go to our Facebook page, which is Winston Salem Light Project. We were very fortunate this year. We actually did uh, two projects this year. We've already done one, which you can only see on our Facebook page. Working with World Stage, we got to be the first people to uh, projection map the White House, which we did for Halloween. Um, I don't know if you've gotten to see that one yet, but um, what we did with this project was every year at Halloween, they do a trick-or-treating at the White House for the children of current or active military and for local underprivileged children. And during this year's event, we were invited by the producers to come down and, and do projections on it. It's always been hard scenery and people in costume and the White House staff dresses up in costume and hands out trick-or-treats. But this year we did a four-minute loop on the White House. And it was kind of fun because we used alumni from the Winston-Salem Light Project in school to create content. And we used current students to work with World Stage to help set up and do the uh, the, the physical ends of set up so it was a, a really great experience for all of us awesome yeah i know i know i want to come check it out yeah so yeah and how many different students uh, are going to be represented in in the tunnel project there will be four seniors who are working on the design execution part of this and then we'll probably wind up with five or six technicians that help us install it and we're using some old technology and if anybody out there has some some extras laying around they want to get rid of uh, we're using versatubes to do this uh-huh and uh, we're using VersaTubes, pretty much not how they were intended to be used. But the idea is that we can actually take that tunnel and shift the color from one end to the other end very slowly or relatively slowly in a linear fashion uh, and make color shifts that way as opposed to the, 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 you know, the way they're often used. But we, had, we got our hands on some of them and, uh, and we have enough of them to do uh, two full runs. And this tunnel is 70 foot long, by the way. So Okay. So it should be kind of interesting and fun. So then, uh -huh. tell me about your non-educational career. Well, I, you know, um, I started out in the uh, 75, 76, graduating college. My first professional show was with a lighting designer, Jeff Schuller, who um, is not with us anymore. And there's a great side story here, but I assisted him on a production of Pearly that was at the National Theater in Washington, D.C. And I was doing notes ran backstage at intermission the first of opening night to give some notes and then run back out. And I actually knocked Hubert Humphrey over on my way out the stage door. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. The secret service at that point just looked at me and let me go by. Cause I, you know, I had a notepad in my hand. I was obviously somebody important, I guess. Uh, you know, you, I don't think you'd ever bump into a vice president and kind of knock him over like I did and get away with it anymore. So that was my first professional experience. But having worked at Temple, I spent my summers at Williamstown, which was a great experience. 
experience knocking out eight shows. Um, we used to do eight shows every summer there. And, and after that, beginning there, I uh, worked at the Empire State Youth Theater in Albany, New York. And this was while they were building that egg-shaped theater that exists now in that South Mall. Yes. Um, and I was sort of the everything guy. I um, lit the shows. I helped move the scenery because we schlepped around New York State uh, doing outreach. Um, loaded the truck, drove the truck. The only thing I didn't have to do was run my own control board, which was nice. Although I always had to teach an actor how to do it because whatever actor wasn't in the show was running the control board. So there we were teaching already, I guess. Yeah. So that was my beginning career. That lasted for a year and a half. And I, you know, I always knew I wanted to live in New York from probably a really weird age, like, I don't know, eight 12, which goes back to one of those weird light memories. But um, so after this, after this time at Empire State Youth Theater, it was evident that I just wanted to get to New York. So I got to New York and I got there with great passion and great desire and lacking some really important skill sets. Fortunately, I did spend one year after college working at uh, the Edinburgh Theater in Philadelphia as the lighting assistant to a fellow named Alvin Ockerland who along with Jeff, um, you know, had the misfortune of passing away in the 80s from AIDS, uh, AIDS-related illness. But he was a, Albin was this interesting technician. He had worked for Century, and that was before it was Century Strand, as an, an electrical engineer. And I was his, like, assistant and draftsman, um, as opposed to the guys who were in our electric shop. And he helped me acquire some skill sets that I didn't get in college in terms of drafting and paperwork and structure. So anyway, you know, he was with Century for years. He was uh, integral in developing that last really great Century Lico um, that I really loved. The, was the, they, well, they called them the California Gray die cast. And it was a really fabulous fixture, way too expensive, but really great. So anyway, he was this, but he was like the ultimate technician type. Um, he, in fact, used to wear a white lab coat um, and would <laughs> wash his hands after everything he did. Um, but, you know, he would like make me, we, there was a sculpture installed in the lobby at the Annenberg at the time through a well. And he made me build a model because we were going to light it. So I had to build the model. I had to do all the draftings um, and actually make a small model of the sculpture. We looked at possible ways of lighting it. So he taught me skill sets or approaches and accuracy that I didn't quite get when I was in college. And he taught me things that Simple things, um, you know. I, you know, graduating college, and this is unfortunate. I didn't really know about eighteen-inch centers because the the fixtures we had in college were the first version of Kliegel um, ellipsoidals that used halogen lamps. So um, I forget the actual those gray ones. Those gray ones, but a six-inch Leco was about three and a half feet tall. Yeah, they were enormous fixtures. So I was like, oh, 18-inch centers, what are those? Why do you do that? It's like, oh, because everybody else's fixtures are a normal size. Yeah. So um, so anyway, so that helped me transition, Empire State Youth Theater, then New York. And I was a kind of a lost kid in the city, but I did what um, I think everybody should do at some level, which is just take whatever work was there. Um, I had a, a, a real passion to want to design. But I knew that, you know, I had to make a living. So, um, hi, do you need an electrician? Hi, can I come and help hang lights? Um, oh, look, the fashion industry. Oh, my God, there's all this work right now. Sure, I'll unload a truck. Oh, by the way, I really want to be a lighting designer. Can I help on the lighting? Oh, by the way. So I worked my way through just taking whatever jobs I could and and working with uh, other alumni um, like Jeff and or uh, Francis Aronson, who had graduated before me. So it'd be like, Francis, uh, do you need anybody to hang a light? So slowly, I was working my way towards that. Theater Row was being developed, so there was always work over there of some sort, helping them actually finish off the theaters. So after a little while there, I was doing that, working my way through, you know, running a follow spot on a fashion show. Um, I met Michael Hotop during that time. Michael had his own design firm, was designing. He had Bill Blast as a client. Um, had several other fashion shows and was also doing regional and some Broadway theater at the time. So I lined up as an assistant there and actually was assisting on whatever he needed, whether it was scenery or lighting. And slowly but surely, a career sort of developed out of this, as well as I started finding myself getting shows out of town more than in town through contacts that I've made through the Empire State Youth Theater. So um, I would be off to Simon Fraser University to, to light 
you know, a dance concert and teach a master class. Um, a good friend, David Rotenberg, became the artistic director of Playmakers Rep here in North Carolina. So I started coming down to North Carolina and designing shows. So it was interesting that I was, it was that at that time that I was living in New York, but I was working everywhere else is where um, a, a lot of things began to happen for me. Like I said, I was assisting for Michael Hotop for a while. And then I got an assistant job on The King and I, which was Yul Brenner's last King and I tour, um, which got me all over the country and really got me to understand that, that process of touring. Um, so, and that was with Ruth Roberts. So from King and I became um, Camelot with Richard Harris. At some point, the tour went out as a summer tour. I did that. Um, it closed, it reopened. Ruth didn't light that next section. They asked me to light it. So I got to light Richard Harris's um, Camelot. It became an international tour. And so that was the real springboard to doing all that. And of course, in the, in the middle of all this, like everybody else, I took that damn union exam, which of course is completely different than it is today. And I guess I, I don't remember what year I got my card. But uh, it was the uh, late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. So union card happened there. Took the test. I actually took the test twice. And, and that's a great story in and of itself is that um, it used to be down at Pace. And, of course, you'd have to schlep your drafting table there. And it was a two. You'd had a take-home part. And then uh, you did two days um, on-site there, which included a practical and a whole other project. So you'd be drafting there for two days. And you had to provide your own drafting table. Yes, you did. <laughs> so, And this was a day of checker cab, so that was kind of easy, but a pain in the butt. And everybody would show up, and you'd, you'd draw lots as to when you got to do the practical. And the two times that I took the exam, I had the practical at Sunday lunch which in my mind was the worst possible time to have the practical. So, yep, you just left your table down there. Usually what would happen is you might be given a, a show that was at the Kennedy Center and you had to redesign the show. That was your home project and you brought all that work with you. And then you had to redesign it to go into the Schubert in New York and resize it, re you know, change it around. Um, and then you'd be given a dance project and maybe one other project to do over this two-day two period, plus the practical. The, the great disadvantage of having your practical on a Sunday at 2 o'clock or a Sunday at, at lunchtime was that both times when I walked through the door to do my practical part, so did the lunch for everybody who was in that room. And sitting behind me is like everybody who's has nothing else to do on a Sunday afternoon in New York, every lighting designer. So as opposed to having two people watch your practical, I had like 20 Mm -hmm. And it was it was it was fun and scary all at the same time as people would be sitting behind you uh, talking about all kinds of other things while you're trying to cue this, you know, whatever whatever part it was, the you know, the, the hummingbird chorus from uh, from Madame Butterfly or this section of Othello, you know, Othello, the, the play. It, it was always really creepy, but it was uh, it was an interesting experience. But I finally got through that and actually got my union card. Um, which did open up these other doors. So that gets us into the early 80s. I'm traveling around. I'm lighting beauty pageants. I'm, I'm working uh, for Carabiner sometimes, drafting or doing smaller shows, industrial shows. Car and Carabiner was a big deal back then. Carabiner was a really big deal back then. And they were pretty much, you know, through the 80s, they were the company who um, – who had all the big clients. They had IBM, they had Ford. Um, I believe they also had GM. They had McDonald's at the time. And when they would get too busy, uh, Gene Lenahan uh, did most of their in-house lighting. But when they got too big uh, or, or too many things happening at once, you know, they would pass off some of the designs to other people. And I eventually got into that pool. Um, and Amy Farentino was doing a lot of TV at the time, and, and I would go in there and actually draft things like the Miss, uh, Miss America pageant as a drafts person, so, which was interesting and frustrating, but um, it was all very too slow for me to be in that kind of, you know, a TV environment seemed so slow. So, yeah, so um, industrials were great at the time, um, and we called them industrials as opposed to corporate theater. 
but the Ford show or the IBM show drafting on that or, and then going out and designing the smaller IBM shows or, um, some of the drug companies. Um, I remember doing, uh, you know, a couple, uh, you know, Merck shows where, where the, the, uh, the big attraction was a dancing pill. I mean, literally a dancing pill, but it taught you a lot. Uh, and there was a lot to be learned from having, uh, a CEO stand behind a podium and after you've worked really hard to get all the lighting right that they'd stand there and look up and say oh well you have to kill that light and it's like yes but that's the light that's you know keeping the shadows from being in your eyes and it's like I don't care it's blinding me kill that light because you knew uh, you know at the end of this the only thing that was going to be left for that CEO or anybody else in the company to see was the video and the last thing you wanted was a was the CEO up there with hollowed out eyes. So you learned how to handle those kinds of situations, and you know, and get the best of both worlds, um, which is a great learning experience. Um, so yeah, so so there I was in the eighties doing all that, getting my tours, desperate for a Broadway show, and as I said, been touring a little bit, and I met Theron. And I'd sat and watched tech rehearsals that she'd done. Um, and, you know, I, I wound up interviewing with her and it was like, oh, my God, please let me be her assistant because this is the place to really learn. And I, I, had, I had interviewed with her uh, because Arden introduced us, Arden Fingerhut, and she had gone through a year where she didn't do a musical. And I can't remember who her assistant was that year because she pretty much only kept assistants for a year. And she promised that she would uh, keep that assistant until she had a musical. So he got to work on a musical. And so that next year, I wasn't going to be able to work with Theron. And that was the year that I also got The King and I, or not The King and I, but um, Camelot with Richard Harris. So there was this thing like, oh, my God, what do I do here? How do I, you know, how do I handle this part of a career educationally and in the long run? I need to send do this assistant track, but God, I really want to be a designer, so I'm going to design. So financially, all of a sudden, I was becoming set with this tour. That allowed me to work at the Lion Theater and and down at West Beth. I was doing a lot of shows, so I was I was getting a good design base, and and that goal of a Broadway show was still out there for me. And, but the root was curious. And this is, this is that interesting thing that you bring back to education. It's like, what's the route to, to uh, get a Broadway show? Or what's the route to design? Well, there is no single route. So from that point on, uh, I sort of had this hot idea of trying to get a show. And I did finally get my first Broadway show by virtue of working with um, – I had been going down to – uh, the Burt Reynolds Dinner Theater in Jupiter, Florida. <laughs> yep, remember this place? Um, and actually, you know, got to meet Burt. That was cool. And uh, it still exists in some format, I think. Just not Burt Reynolds Dinner Theater. But we did a show there that was slowly being developed by uh, um, uh, David Rotenberg again, who, um, who uh, uh, a friend who got me into Playmakers, uh, and Paul Shearhorn, who was a musician. And we decided, or they decided, that they wanted to do um, a new musical, a new rock musical. And they were developing the script and the music, and and having known them really well, um, I would come in and we'd talk about it. And we started developing this idea of putting together a rock band to solely do a show, and the piece was going to be called The News. And, and this was about the time that um, USA Today came out. And we were all complaining or talking about how the news was becoming homogenized and how, um, how USA Today was sort of the McDonald's of news and what a horrible thing this was. And so we talked through this scenario of setting up a rock concert slash projection image show idea that uh, made fun of both tabloids like um, – and I forget the names of all the great tabloids in New York now out of my mind. Like the Star, like the Star and, and the all those. Inquirer. Yep. yep. And- so, you know, making fun of those um, while tying them together with USA Today. So 
we started working on this. We sat and brainstormed about it. Um, rock concert, lots of images. It was going to be like this big projection show. And, you know, we sort of laid, I sort of laid out storyboards for the projection ideas. And I got busy with other projects, um, wound up going to Australia with Richard Harrison and uh, Camelot. And when I got back, um, all of a sudden, this had become a play or a musical that they were going to do. And that musical got converted into having a, a more of a solid plot than we had talked about. And it involved the editor of the newspaper that would be similar to uh, the Daily News. And he had a young daughter and he was a single parent. And all of a sudden there was a killer involved and the killer was stalking her. And so it became like a, like a pot boiler. Yep. <laughs> And so we did it. We did. We wound up. We wound up staging it at the Dinner Theater in Florida, and it came off really well. You know, it was interesting rock music. It was the time that Police was really were really popular, and the music had a you know kind of Police edge to it. Um, it was a literal rock band on stage, not a faux rock band in the pit, and it did really well at Burt Reynolds Dinner Theater which, you know, has an audience that we didn't think was going to like it because it was real rock music. Mm-hmm. Um, I had fluorescent lights going on and flickering. And, and so this actually wound up becoming my first Broadway show because the producers said, okay, let's move it. So let's move it off Broadway. And I was like really pitching for the Second Avenue Theater. I lived at Fifth Street between First and Second Avenue. It was like, oh, man, this is a perfect theater for it. <laughs> um, I can walk there. <laughs> But, you know, it made sense and it made a lot of sense to be off Broadway because we were making fun of newspapers, basically. We were making really serious fun of newspapers. And one of the numbers in it was um, making fun of headlines, you know, like woman found with goat head uh, in bed. And, you know, so it went on and on and on and on and on about ridiculous headers and banners of newspapers and how they preyed upon uh, people. Um, How prescient you guys were. I mean, it was going to get so much worse, but you just didn't we know. Didn't know. No, we didn't know. We knew it was bad, but we didn't know it was going to get as bad as it is. So we, the producers wound up getting the Ethel Bowerimore on Broadway. And it was like, oh, wait a second. We're not going off Broadway. We're going to Broadway. And, you know, you're immediately torn. You know, in my heart, it's like, God, I want a Broadway show. But in my mind, it was like, you know we're making fun of newspapers here. This isn't going to go well. And this is like real rock and roll. This is not, you know, we're not softening up the edges here. So indeed we wound up on Broadway with this piece and it looked great. It felt great. It sounded great. The newspapers hated it. So I wound up having my first Broadway show and my first Broadway failure, which was both exciting and thrilling and, uh, you know, sad all at once. Met great people, um, went up, you know, using some assistants that had become lifelong friends. But yeah, uh, that was my first Broadway adventure as a designer. Okay. And that gets us to, oh, I don't know, 85, I guess. I'm still getting lots of shows around the country at this point and hanging out and waiting for that next Broadway show. What I didn't do, and this would be my, this is the the cautionary tale, is um, I sort of stopped pursuing the assistant track, which again, and we've talked about this, you know, before, is that idea that that certainly at the time in the eighties, the way to go was you assisted till you learned how to deal with this, and then you moved your way up. I was I was doing everything the really stubborn hard way, which was learning by the seat of my pants and by doing it. So wound up getting a second Broadway show again through a Florida connection, interestingly enough. And that and that was uh, Prince Central Park, right? That was the Prince of Central Park, which had been a movie, um, was a novel. It was already in the works uh, when I was called into it and asked if I wanted to do it. Uh, I flew down to Florida to see the piece, uh, which was was already mounted down there. And I looked at it and I thought, you know, this has really great potential. It's a great story. Uh, Saw the movie. You know, it's a homeless kid who's living in Central Park, found by a woman who tries to, you know, protect him and keep him away from gangs. And we packaged it. Uh, reworked it, built it, um, brought it to the Belasco Theater in New York. We redid it, let me see, from the from when I saw it, we redid it at a place called the Hirschfeld Theater, which was on Miami Beach. Uh, when it was first done, I guess it was at the Jan Cart Theater, I think that's right, in Key West, is when I, when I first encountered the piece. 
came to New York, changed the director, you know, on and on and on, you know, all these little things, added numbers, tried to work it. And again, it was one of those things, just like the news, I was really happy with my work and the design work. And with the Prince of Central Park, I was really happy with the design work. But this, with this one, deep down in my heart, I knew the story wasn't going to fly on Broadway. Um, but the experience was great. And, and being in the Belasco Theater alone was just an incredible treat. It had been closed for a while. It was just opened up. And I actually, you know, the stagehands were like super. And the house props guy showed me how to get up to Belasco's old apartment, which, nice. was, yeah, which was really sweet. And, you know, I got to see his little peephole where he could look down at the stage where he could watch what was going on in the stage while he was still in his apartment. It's a very cool place. And, and all of a sudden, all that theater history, like, just overwhelms you. So that was my second Broadway show. And, and again, you know, it closed. So, um, you know, it didn't work out so well. And during all of this, Camelot just kept chugging along uh, with Richard Harris. So I guess we were in, that was in its third or fourth year at some point. So... There I was, wanting my next Broadway show, um, had met uh, the woman who uh, eventually became my wife, Annie Breskowitz, who uh, was wardrobe person, still is, is out on Wicked right now. Which also just keeps chugging along. Just keeps chugging along, doesn't it? It's like, okay, well, here's like, here's the little money machine that comes along every once in a while. You know, and the, it's, it's interesting how those shows work and how those shows hit. So anyway, so, you know, life was moving on. Um, we talked about marriage and all those good things and all those ramifications. Um, you know, we were looking at perhaps moving out of New York, perhaps not getting an apartment or getting, you know, keeping the apartment in New York. And, you know, like many people do like, do we move upstate? Do we want to, you know, a place in Jersey? How about like Doylestown, Pennsylvania, or, you know, where you can commute in and out when you need to. So we were looking at all these parameters and, and during this whole time, I'd been coming to um, North Carolina on a regular basis because I'd been lighting North Carolina theaters musicals, which they did for a year. And I would come down and do those shows and, you know, get back to New York as quickly as I could. And in coming down here, there was a TD who was, the t was also teaching at School of the Arts. And he just kept nagging and nagging and nagging um, about applying for the job. And I kept saying you were crazy. Um, and then I thought about, well, you know, okay, we're getting married. This will give us a year steady income to figure all this out. I can still do some side work. And that's how School of the Arts came about was uh, I interviewed on a lark. Um, I'll do this. That'll get him off my back. Um, it was literally I interviewed the week before we were going to get married. Uh, and uh, the Dean, John Sneeden, who's dean at the time, asked me to leave the room, conferred with the other faculty, and asked me to come back in the room and offered me the job. It's like, oh, God, what do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't anticipate this. So, you know, it's the, uh, nobody expected the Spanish Inquisition. So I asked for a week to think about it, got married, and thought, well, you know, this is sort of some sort of interesting interlude in my life, and I'll, I'll do this. And that's how I wound up coming here and teaching. And it also changed the shift and it made a big shift in my professional career because it's, you know, it was that standard thing. You know, if, if you can't answer the phone and be cross town in a couple hours, you're going to start losing jobs. Um, and of course, you know, that's what began to happen. Um, you know, becoming more dedicated to the students mean, meant I had to shift how I thought about uh, my personal design career because I certainly didn't want to stop designing. Um, and actually it's kind of a requirement of school. Um, we don't publish, we actually continue to work. So I found myself getting interested in something I'd never been interested in before other than, you know, the occasional listening treat, but I started looking at opera and what wound up happening is that they needed somebody to like the local opera and the local opera led to the Fort Worth opera and it led to, Opera Pacific, and it you know it led me to branch off and do other opera work, um, which I continue to do today. I do the the Princeton Festival Opera in May every year in Princeton. So all of a sudden, I shifted and started seeing opera uh, and lighting opera and finding a new visual aesthetic and voice that I never had before. That combined with uh, continuing North Carolina theater um, was good for, and, uh, for a while. 
And uh, most recently, it's now, I guess, for the last eight or so years, I do a show or two a year with Triad Stage, which is a, um, a local regional theater that casts out of New York uh, and um, actually does really solid work and explores pieces in ways that, um, that we don't always often get to do. Interestingly enough, it brought me back to my roots in some ways. And I think that um, for the longest time at Triad Stage, I became the guy who did the really heady plays. So we're back to, we're back to where I first started getting involved in theater, which is um, waiting for Godot. <laughs> So, you know, I'm doing the caretaker and I'm doing the pinter plays for them, you know, the occasional Shaw. But the work there allows for the artists involved to really explore in ways that not a lot of theaters let you do. Preston Lane, who's the artistic director, uh, School of the Arts student, uh, as an undergraduate, went to Yale, directing student, is the artistic director. And he, he really likes to explore plays and and find ways to keep the core message and the core idea of the play while bringing it into a visual aesthetic that isn't normal or standard and uh and the theater at triad stage is very much uh similar to um the guthrie and it's a really deep tongue thrust which is similar to playmakers where i'd worked for a while as well in the paul green theater so we've done some really interesting explorations there, and I get to I get to have that input as a lighting designer that you don't always get. Uh, Triad Stage is great at about having designers come in early, and we literally sit down and talk about the play, and we talk about the ideas of the play before we ever start designing. So it's that it's that luxury of not walking through the door with the set design already figured out which is rare in our business, and uh, uh, I think. So, um, so we got to do some great things, and I've done some, I think some of my best mature work has been with Triad Stage. Um, we did a, a glass menagerie I'm incredibly proud of. I'd done it a couple times before, but uh, I think that piece worked really, really well. And I just did a production. They've expanded, and they now actually have a theater both in Greensboro, North Carolina, and in Winston-Salem. And I, uh, we just did a production of Wit, which uh, I thought was incredibly successful. Uh, Fred Kinney did the set. It was uh, a, a really wonderful um, adventure in design. So I now work in these two polar worlds, is how I explain it. I do opera, where you have to light the show incredibly quickly in 12 hours and be done with it because you can't get the singers or everybody else there. And then I work at Triad Stage, which actually takes – um, the idea of a cue to cue and 10 out of 12 seriously in that um, when we light a show, when you light a show for triad stage, that first day you have everything in place, including costumes. So tech rehearsals and 10 out of 12s are literally cue to cue in costume. So you have everything there when you start painting the stage. Incredible. Yeah, it's, it is incredible. So I've got this process that's incredibly slow and detailed. And then I do opera where you have to rip through it really quickly and pretty much, you know, like the whole show or get your rough sketch up while they're doing spacing rehearsal. Because after that, you're not going to have much tag time. So, um, well, that's, but that's okay because your backlight is like two ten Ks, right? Eh, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's that I get to do the opera where I use these giant brush strokes, and then I work at Triad Stage where I'm doing these little tiny brush strokes. But yeah, it, it's interesting world. But uh, as I say, some of the some of my stuff at Triad, I, I'm really proud of in that. It sort of shows a mature voice in my work. Um, it's taken a while to get to, but also shows um, a diversity as well. Um, because now I don't only do the uh, you know the absurdist plays; they they let me do some other stuff as well. So, so what's coming up at Triad that people can come check out? Um, well, you know, I've done my shows for the year there um, already. And there might be something in the spring, but I don't know about it. But I, uh, like I say, I just did wit, which closed about a week ago. This, this term or this, I, I look at, at things in school years, but this season for me has been really front loaded. I've done three industrials basically, or three, um, industrials in opera, um, a play. And of course we projected on the white house. So those six gigs happened between August and now, and I get a little breather 
So I'm not sure about my next triad stage, but uh, Piedmont Opera will be coming up in March with a little night music. Uh, like many opera companies now, they're doing an opera and then something that they see as a doable musical to to uh, to keep audience involved. So so that's the future right now. And then uh, and then at Peter Grimes in Princeton in May. Excellent. So I'll be in Princeton in May, which I, I love coming to Princeton. It's uh, it's after the students have all left, so you have that whole campus to yourself to walk, wander around. And then of course I can jump on a train and be in New York in minutes, which is uh, what days off are about. Now, so your time on Broadway was right in the teeth of AIDS. Yes. I know it's an uncomfortable subject, but can you tell me about that at all? And maybe if there are some lessons we should be drawing from that. Wow. Um, yeah, there's lots of lessons. It it was a really bad time. You know, the, like I say, um, Jeff Schuler, who... Um, Got me my first professional gig. He was a he was a Billington assistant. Um, was branching out, brilliant, um, confident, maybe cocky in some ways. You know, he got lost uh, to AIDS. Um, you know, Alvin, who who taught me a lot, lost to AIDS. Um, but you know, as you looked around and you and you just saw what was going on, it it you know at the time it didn't make sense. And not only did it not make sense, but you didn't know, there was that sense of like, where's it going to strike? Is this going to get everybody? And what's the shape of things to come? Um, you know, uh, let's face it, you know, we all saw Chorus Line and went, oh my God, what an incredible show. What an amazing lighting design. Um, and then all of a sudden Bennett's gone. And, you know, so it, it, it um, people that I'd met, uh, choreographer Ed Love, who uh, became a really good friend, um, and again we worked at Burt Reynolds Dinner Theater together. Looked to have a promising career and struck down in his twenties. It really made us all pull back from this really wild, free-ranging lifestyle, for one thing. But it also became scary as to where are we going? Who are the leaders in theater going to be? Um, it, it's interesting that that became the realization of, oh God, we're not indestructible and we are vulnerable. That was a real big blow in terms of, of thinking that we're indestructible. We can do anything. We can create all this art. You know, all of a sudden life became short and vulnerable and people we become close to were gone. Um, you know, I think the it's a hard life lesson and it's the only way you learn it is, is that idea of how fragile life is and how vulnerable we are. Um, I think every generation has to learn it on their own in some way. Sometimes it can be very personal with the loss of a relative or a friend, but on the scale that happened here, it was kind of unbelievable. And then when you start tying in all the politics of it, and you get to things like Angels in America and Tony Kushner and, and the idea of, you know, how the politics were ignoring it and how um, the world was ignoring it and saw it at that time only as a, as a gay disease is, is, um, is a whole nother lesson that takes us back to the news. It's like, you know, how do we, how do you, as if that was a good enough reason to ignore it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, how do we, how do we absorb this information um, and how do we take in, you know, the idea of the reality on the ground versus the, the, what we're hearing from the news media or from politicians and how to separate all that and really pay attention to what's important. Cause in the end, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that theater is life. We put life on the stage every night. You know, it's not the cinema where you see people frozen on that film doing the same thing every night. Theater is about life in the end, and it's about people. So for this particular industry to be hit so hard by that and so much talent going away, um, it's a really tough life lesson. But it really, you know, it really makes me look at, and I've always been a bit cynical, but it really makes me look at the difference between reality and what we could perceive as reality that we get from newspapers and and TV media and um, and the the word on the street via politicians that all of that has to be separated and you really have to pay attention to what's going on around you and and, and be vocal and be a voice 
which I love to bring to my work as much as possible. You can't always do that. Sometimes people just need entertainment. Um, and I guess that's why at some point I was that, that guy who loved the absurdist plays. They were life lessons of some sort trying to make me a better person or trying to make all of us better people um, by showing us something you know, or recreating life on stage. We're back to those Greeks again, I think, in democracy. Before we go, is there something that you teach to your students or is it something that you that you wish just wish you could say to everyone in the business that everyone listening to this could hear? <laughs> you know, as trite as it might seem, I think the I think the thing that's that would be most important to say is that we just really need to have fun. That treating people well and and listening and having fun is really what gets us to great work and great product. And it, and it certainly makes the process better. So treat people well. Treat people kindly. Yeah. So people want to know more about you, they should check out your page on the uh, UNCSA website. They, they should check out Triad Stage. Yep. They should check out uh, Light Project. Winston-Salem Light Project. It's lightproject.org or Winston-Salem Light Project on Facebook. And uh, and yeah, those are the those are the places they can find out a little bit more. And is your, is your contact information available on the uh, University of North Carolina School of the Arts website? It absolutely is. If you go there and go to School of Design and Production and then click on Faculty, um, all my contact information will be there. Wonderful. Norman, yeah. thank you so, so much for joining me. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. This has been a real treat and uh, a whole time of thinking about what I do. And, and you know, it's that, that thing that we don't take much time to think about how we got to where we are. And hopefully that helps us take the next step with more confidence. I guess we'll leave it there. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. You can use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can find all of our previous episodes there. We're also on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast and on Twitter at Podcasting Light. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. You can learn more about them at lamedrivers.com. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for downloading, and have a good show. Good show.